Um, it's so good to be here. Uh, last week, as Rachel said, not only did we actually have some amazing acting going on, but we saw how important it is to understand the Bible is one big story. And when you get the big story of the Bible, it helps you really understand the little, smaller stories and characters and characters and narrative that goes on within the Bible. And last week, if you missed it, we saw how God's presence, the Holy Spirit, is now with us, in us, uh, with us as we gather together corporately. And we were just massively encouraged to cultivate that relationship with the Holy Spirit and expect more of his work amongst us as we gather in his name. Uh, When I went to preach at North last week, um, uh, a lady called Natasha came to the front at the end of the service and Natasha had uh, been having a very tough day. Right at the start of the day, she'd actually prayed, God, would you make my heart heart hard? Um, which is a strange thing to pray, but she's uh, a mother uh, who has a very soft heart, and things affect her deeply. And I think she just felt that she just couldn't cope with just the emotional stress of life. And she was like, God, make my heart heart hard. And then they took communion, so this before I even got to the meeting, and during communion, someone came up to her and prophesied over her from Ezekiel, saying, God has given you not a heart of stone, not a hard heart, but a heart that's soft, a heart of flesh. And as soon as she heard that, she, you know, she, she was crying and crying a lot during the service, but she just suddenly knew that God was with her, God totally understood the situation. And I just love that story, because... That's God's temple. That's God's presence with his people. That's us encouraging one another, strengthening and bringing comforts. And so this week we're going to carry on this theme of the big story, but today we're doing the big story of God, God's people or God's family. And I think this is a really important message because we live in a world that really struggles to know what it is to be a new community or a people together or a family Um, There are huge needs uh, out there, Uh, people longing for community, longing for an antidote to loneliness and isolation, but struggling because of relationship breakdown and prejudice in society. And so I'm so excited to be out preaching God's desire to call a people to himself, a loving family for the sake of the world. Just if you don't know, I mean, just in society, lots of stats have been collated, but just to try and summarise, one in eight people in the UK have no close friends, like no one that's close. It's estimated that 14% of the UK population, so that's 9 million people, suffer from loneliness. And it's believed that loneliness can be as dangerous for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So there's this desperate need out there for friendship and for connection and inclusion. But the problem is there's also massive deep divides in 21st century Britain. The extent of racial bias um, and racism that's faced by black and Asian and minority ethnic citizens is just huge. So another recent survey said one in eight surveyed had heard racist language directed at them in the month before the survey. 43% of those from minority ethnic backgrounds have been overlooked for work promotion in a way that felt unfair in the last five years. And that was twice that of white people who experienced that. And the results show that ethnic minorities are three times as likely to have been thrown out or denied entrance to a restaurant or bar or club in the last five years. And more than two-thirds of them believe that Britain has a problem with racism. 
I don't know what you think, but uh, my eyes increasingly are being opened to these huge divides there are between us. David Lammy, who's Labour MP for Tottenham, said the findings in this recent result were very upsetting. He says racial prejudice continues to weigh on the lives of black and ethnic minority people in the UK. While we all share the same hard-won rights, our lived experience and opportunities can vary. And I just want to be very honest, this unconscious bias and sort of racist attitude at times can be at work in the church. And if you are white in this room, you can totally underestimate the challenges for someone who isn't. And we're so grateful for anyone in the room that isn't from a white British background. Uh, we love having diversity. We love that sense of different cultures in the room, but we totally acknowledge it's tough. And we're sorry for many mistakes we make as the majority culture that exclude the minority culture. And for me, when I come to a topic like God's people, this gives me hope that the church can model something different that God has got a plan and a solution to the deep divides there are in culture and sometimes within the church. And I'm thankful that there's hope for us, even if there's struggle and difficulty. So listen, I'm going to just try and take us through the story. And the story actually starts before creation, because the story starts with God. God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect community. And God doesn't create mankind because he's really lonely, but rather he is um, aware that he has perfect community that he wants to share. And so he creates Eden. And in Eden, he places the first family who knew this perfect harmony between them and God and them and each other. However, the Bible tells us uh, as soon as Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God and against his best, all relationships in Eden are completely fractured. We're going to read about it um, from uh, Genesis. It says this, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave, gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And just in that little picture there, Adam and Eve experienced three completely novel and deeply negative experiences for the first time that would forever accompany mankind. They experienced guilt, shame and fear. In verse 7, they cover their nakedness because they are newly ashamed. In verse 10, they hide from God, fearing the one who's only ever been loving towards them. And in verses 12 and 13, Adam and Eve played a blame game, highlighting their guilt. And ever since that day, ever since that day, 
we have all experienced those three things. Guilt, shame, and fear. In one sense, the Bible describes us all in Adam. So in Adam means that we share in his sin and we naturally rebel against God. And this impacts our relationship with him and our relationship with one another. Adam's children, Cain and Abel, well, they also embody this dysfunction. Abel uh, raised sheep and his sacrifices were pleasing to God. Cain was a farmer who was jealous of Abel's relationship and so that spilled over into bitterness and anger and Cain actually murders his brother and God is horrified and there are some huge consequences for what happens. So I just need two volunteers at this point. Um, so... Um, uh, firstly, uh, this is Adam. Oh, strong, Adam. And Adam, well, he's in the garden with God and he knows God intimately, but he sins. And so God excludes him from the garden. He's thrown out of God's presence and a cherubim stands at the entrance to the presence of God, making sure that Adam can't go in. Cain, Cain, kills his brother and so is sent away. A long, long way away from the presence of God. Cain sins and he's sent to the land of Nod in Genesis 4. And it's a place where he has no home, there's no peace, there's no rest, it's a land of wandering but there's still grace and a chance of redemption because he's given a mark on his head to stop people killing him. Do you mind, Charles? I've got loads of bass echoing back here. Can you just turn that down for me? So listen, in the Bible, Adam, remember, excluded from the presence of God, Adam reflects the nation of Israel. Just one nation. Cain represents every other nation. Cain reflects all the other nations of the world. Both are far from God. Both are far from one another. And there's barriers between them and God, and there's barriers between them and each other. And so when the Apostle Paul is thinking about what Jesus does for us at the cross... He says that when Jesus dies, the barriers between us and God are removed, are demolished. The curtain in the temple is ripped, you remember, uh, from top to bottom, healing this vertical relationship. But he also says that the racial boundaries between people that are near and far are also demolished. And so he says this in Ephesians 2, and we've got it on the screen. And he says, not only does Jesus' blood speak a better word than Abel's, in other words, Jesus' blood means forgiveness, not vengeance. Ephesians 2 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he puts to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. So there's two things here. He preaches, Jesus preaches to those that are far and brings them near. And he preaches to those that are close. And at the cross, he breaks down the barrier. Breaks down the barrier between them both and brings them in to the presence of God together. This is God's new humanity. The barriers between them have been broken. You know, uh, many, many years ago at Mosaic to try and uh, symbolize this or picture what happens in Jesus is that we erected a huge barrier um, and on the barrier we wrote all the things that sort of separate us from one another. And we made this big barrier out of paper and I had someone take a running jump and dive through the barrier. And there were people on the other side sort of waiting to catch him and no one died. It was quite incredible. But it was a moment to sort of just like visibly, tangibly see that in Christ something happens vertically and horizontally as they come into God's presence together. Brilliant job, you two. Give them a round of applause. That, though, doesn't mean for Israel all the problems go away by any means. Um, And after Cain, uh, eventually came Abraham and Sarah, who were given some incredible promises chiefly that God would bless their family so that they would be a blessing to every family on earth. And through them, actually, all families would know God. And to mark just how important that promise to Abraham and Sarah was, in ancient times, when making a promise, you would uh, sometimes take a goat or a ram or a dove and, or a calf even, and you would cut these animals in two. And then you would place each half um, uh, opposite one another, each half of each animal, and you would create what is called a blood path between the animals. And the idea is that you would walk through the blood path when you made a promise. And the idea is that as you walk through it, you would say, if I break my promise, let me be like these animals, torn in two. Such is my commitment. And we find in Genesis 15 that when God makes a promise to Abraham, God himself walks through the animals. God himself walks through the animals, through the blood path. He's declaring that even though he doesn't make, it doesn't break his promise, and God's people do constantly, He's declaring that he himself would be ripped apart. Ripped apart so that this promise to this worldwide family won't be broken. And we find that happens at the cross. He pays the debt that we owe so that we can live in the blessing of God. But for God's people, even though they inherit this incredible promise, the problem of sin Guilt, shame and fear is still at work in people's hearts which separate them from God and from each other. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations because God's desire was for a diverse family, 
from every nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's treasured possessions that cares for those most at risk in society and truly loves each other in such a way that the world sees their community life and knows that God truly is God. And so Moses is raised up. He's a a leader of God's people. He sets up the sacrificial system, which was there to deal with sin. And they also had a radical system called the Year of Jubilee. The Year of Jubilee, well, every 50 years or so, resources would be redistributed back among the people. So people, uh, property that had been sold would go back to the original owner. People, because of debt, had been sold into slavery, would be released, would be set free. People um, were liberated and debt obliterated. And God had this incredibly generous system within family life, but we actually doubt that Israel ever truly practised the year of Jubilee. And so the prophets, they longed for something different. Isaiah prophesied that the idea of Israel's greatest enemies becoming united, incorporated into this new family, knowing God, loving each other and blessing the world, it was just such a radical concept. It's hard for us to imagine how striking these words would have been. In Isaiah 19, he says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be a third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. I mean, this is remarkable. These are ancient enemies that hated one another, that killed one another, blessed to be a blessing. God wanted to repair the differences between the clans and the tribes and the races so that even enemies would love one another for the sake of the world and be part of the same family. And this new family would also reflect God's longing for the most vulnerable to be brought in. Isaiah 58 says, Is not this the kind of fasting that I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This family was meant to be made up of the broken and the vulnerable and the unwanted and the weak and the orphans and the widows. But Israel fails to be that people again and again. And sadly, we have the story of Jonah. Jonah sort of encapsulates everything that was wrong with the Jewish nation. Jonah was, was, was an example of how not to do it. He was called by God to go and preach in a distant land to the Ninevites, uh, to to present to them the grace of God. But he does everything in his power not to go. Why? Because he doesn't want God's grace and mercy to be poured out on another nation, on foreigners. So he does everything in his power to escape. While God is saving, Jonah is judging. And so beautifully and wonderfully, we know the story evolves till finally Jesus comes. God in the flesh comes to earth as a human. He doesn't sin. So even though he was Adam's descendant, he chooses a completely different path, uh, born of a virgin. He perfectly obeys God's law 
and builds around him a family that's made up of everyone that society had shunned. He calls his followers to love one another, to bless and to care and to be family. And then at the cross, even though innocent, the punishment that we were due gets placed on his shoulders. Our guilt, our shame, our fear is put onto him. And for the first time in his life, in his eternal existence, he experiences separation and isolation and loneliness. He is despised. He is rejected. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he sees each of his disciples run out on him, deny him and leave him alone. But as he takes those things into him, they die. The power of them dies with him. At the cross, even though innocent, he dies on our behalf once and for all, conquering sin and death and all that separates us from God and all that separates us from one another. And once again, he calls his followers to be a family that God intended in Eden. But the difference is, in Jesus, his followers have a new identity to be God's people. And so when the Apostle Paul summarizes the impact of man, uh, on mankind in the victory that's won at the cross, he divides mankind into two camps. And he divides them into people that are in Adam. Let's say this block here are in Adam. And he divides the rest of mankind into those that are in Christ. You can be just sort of neutral for the moment. I hope that's okay. So you're in Christ, yay. You're in Adam. Sorry about that. In Adam, Paul says this. And actually, Kenny, can I just use you for a minute? I'm really sorry. This is Kenny. He's in Adam. Can't quite tell your reaction in the room, but he is in Adam. And there's three things that it means for, uh, for Kenny right now. If he's in Adam, number one, he's under sin. Paul says, in Adam, we share in Adam's sin and we also inherit his tendency to sin. And we're under sin's power, which means naturally and normally we're selfish, we're self-seeking. Um, there's stuff in our heart that just destroys community and there's no escape. And in Adam, Kenny will always fail. No matter how hard he tries, he will always fail because he's under the power of sin. He's also under condemnation from the law. So he fails to live in obedience to God's law, which is summarised by Jesus. Love God with everything you have. Love one another as yourself. And he fails to do that 100% of the time. And so the law confirms our guilt. We owe a deep debt to God that we cannot pay ourselves. He's under sin, but he's under condemnation from the law. And he's also under the power of death. So as a consequence for his sin... He faces judgment and death and beyond that an eternity separated from God. Now one day, gloriously, a friend of Kenny's invites him to Alpha. And at Alpha, he hears the good news of Jesus' death on his behalf. Kenny thinks 
in that moment he becomes a Christian, I've decided to follow Christ. God says, I've taken you out of Adam and I've placed you into Christ. And in Christ, let me just come with you, a few things happen because he's in Christ. Christ dies to sin once and for all. So Kenny, his old self dies on the cross. His old sinful self dies. Just stay there. Romans 6 says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. So that is, Christ Jesus really died on the cross. And when he died, he dealt with sin so completely that his death never has to be repeated. It was once for all. And he took care of the problem of sin for all who are in him because the old sinful you died with him. Romans 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who had died is free from sin. So in Christ, your old sinful self dies. And then secondly, because you're in Christ, just go to the ground, you are buried. You're buried with Christ as well. So Christ is buried in a tomb. And when you are baptised, you are buried in a grave too. That's symbolised by taking people right down into the water and your old sinful self is discarded. You're buried with Christ in baptism. And then gloriously... You rise with Christ as Christ is resurrected. Just as he is raised from the grave, you are now resurrected. For we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This new self that is free from the power of sin and death is alive to God and a new power is at work. In his life, he can resist temptation. He can live for others, not himself. He can forgive. He can embrace people that are different from himself. And it doesn't mean that he's perfect, but by faith, he's fighting for what his true identity is, free from the power of sin and what he's declared to be in Christ. And now, wonderfully, he gets to join a brand new family with people that are in Christ. These are his new brothers and sisters in Jesus that are welcoming him in beautifully. In Christ, he's been adopted into God's family. God the Father, Jesus, his elder brother, and then surrounded by um, uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He's now totally in a different position. He has a total different status, a total different inheritance. And this new family is meant to be made up of many different people, diverse yet united, free from the power of sin. Great job, Kenny. Let's give him a round of applause. You can go back to your old life if you want to. Yeah, if you want to. Slightly backsliding right now. And then we have the early church. And the early church grasped this move. They grasped this power at work in people's hearts. And the early church was a multiracial family that experienced unity across ethnic boundaries that was just startling. But it took time. Peter himself, one of the apostles, he grew up thinking that Jewish people should always be separate from the Gentiles, from other nations. And it took this powerful encounter with God 
uh, in Acts 10, this vision of God showing him, convincing him that he should be joined to others. Nevertheless, the the early church demonstrated incredible forgiveness and reconciliation as they faced persecution. You see, they lived in this shame, honour culture in which vengeance was expected. And it was unheard of Christians... um, uh, not uh, retali- it was unheard of uh, Christians actually retaliating against the aggressors, but rather they incredibly uh, uh, chose to turn the other cheek. They turned to live a peaceful life. The early church was famous for hospitality towards the poor and those that were suffering. It was expected to care for the poor of one's own family uh, or, or tribe, but Christians lavished help on all poor people. And they themselves lived out the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is all about cross-cultural healing and touching those that were in need. And so listen, if you've, you've come with me on the journey so far, I'm coming into a landing. What does this mean for us? If you've done the journey from in, being in Adam to being in Christ, if you've been placed in a new family, the people of God, designed in Eden, Uh, fulfilled and uh, brought about by Jesus on the cross and lived out by the early church. What does that mean for us? Well, number one, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're free from the power of sin. So you're able to deal with the things that undermine true friendship and family. So is there jealousy in your heart? Is there bitterness? Is there unforgiveness? Is there impatience or a lack of love? Is there prejudice? Is there in you something that fights against the picture of God's family that he's wanting to build here? Secondly, if you belong in a new, you belong in a new radical family, let's get better at welcoming people into our lives. You know, if we're to be made up of of different colours and classes, ages and stages, if we're to be that family, it will take everyone initiating with others not just waiting to respond for the invite, but all of us deciding we're going to reach out to one another. Like a simple question is like, when did you last invite someone into your home that's from the church that perhaps is a new person or someone you don't know so well? When did you last sort of just open your family up to those that are part of this family? Remember the barriers between you and God and you and one another have been demolished in Jesus. Thirdly, we work hard to build a new family. Different races, colours, nations, ages, stages and classes because we are one new tribe in Christ. And it's not that your identity disappears when you become a Christian, but rather your primary identity is in Christ. And then all your family culture and heritage flows from there. Repent from your unconscious bias. And go above and beyond to overcome prejudice in the church. You know, it's just hugely challenging for for black, Asian, minority ethnic people to be in a white majority church. And it's so important that that if you're in the majority culture, you you take time to listen. You take time to learn. You recognise that you could be at fault. And if you're from those backgrounds, we ask you, like, be patient with us and help us work together to build something um, different. We, we acknowledge that it's so much harder for you. But we long 
for a family that's different, but united in Jesus. And fourthly, our mission then is to reach out to young and old, rich and poor, and always have a bias towards those that are most vulnerable in society. We are blessed to be a blessing, a family that reflects the one that will one day gather with Jesus in the new creation. Revelation 7. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb and they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Each family, each language, each culture worshipping God as one. That's the dream.